Good morning, everybody. I love the pageantry that comes with yesterday's game. A commentator was saying about the game, he said there's almost as much going on before the game as during the game. And obviously that was true yesterday, if you're a Navy fan. But if you didn't hear the chaplain of the Navy at the beginning uh, pray, you missed it. He said that um, this is probably the only game you will attend or watch where the people on the field are willing to die for the people in the stands rather than the other way around. And then he quoted a very famous passage in John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. The rest of that verse goes on where Jesus says, you are my friends. What a great tying in to a football game. Typically, that's not usually what happens is that when it's over, everybody is on the same side. Uh, I come from a state that whoever wins for 365 days, it's, a, it's an opportunity to dig the other side. <laughs> and this year it was this way. If you are uh, uh, new to EP, we have been and do on Sundays work through passages in the Bible. And for all fall, we have been looking at the letter of James. It's a real small letter. It's only at five uh, sections or five chapters that uh, you would find in the very back of your Bibles, not all the way, that would be a book called Revelation, and then there is a Jude and, and, and three letters of John, and then Peter's, and then you would find James. And we are at the last two verses of that study uh, today. And so I want to read them uh, to us. Uh, you can follow on the screen, or if you uh, can look in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. It's on page 1,292. Or if you have your own Bibles, it's on James chapter 5, verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. My brothers, and please read, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will recover a multitude of sins. Let's ask the Lord to open our hearts to read and understand. Father, thank you for the privilege of reading your word. Thank you for the privilege of hearing your word. And so now we ask for the privilege of understanding it and believing it and ultimately to obey it. We thank you for this letter by this a servant of yours who has brought us truth and beauty and goodness. And may our lives reflect it in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, we have been studying the book of James and the theme that we have used for the book of James is this, the works of faith. And the way that James has stated it a couple of times so far is that uh, faith without works is dead. What he means by that is that if you confess or profess a faith in Christ, that you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, then that truth, that faith 
produces works. That is, it has applications and implications for the way in which we live our lives. In fact, long before Christianity was called Christianity, it was called the way. That is, that it wasn't just a way, a a truth to believe or announce. It was also a truth we lived. In fact, uh, when uh, Christians were finally called Christians, little Christ ones... It was because we were walking, our Christians were trying to walk in the way in which he lived. And so the way James captures that idea is that faith without works, that is to have a profession of being a Christian, but no life that comes into line with that reality is no faith at all. In fact, Martin Luther puts it this way in the Middle Ages. He would say, that we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. And so what we have been focusing on is that genuine faith produces works. And I think that's very important, the order in which it is given. That is, if you have genuine faith, it produces works. That is, you can't do works that produce the genuine faith But if you have genuine faith, it will produce the works. Nobody's saying perfectly. Nobody is saying uh, that it is with, uh, with not failure and without sin. We're just saying that if there is a genuine faith, and it's not me, it's what James is teaching, and therefore it's the word of God, it's the scriptures, that if there is a genuine faith, that it produces in the believer works. And so James has been slowly showing us and revealing to us what those works are in our lives. Next week, we will uh, move on from our study in James and for uh, a few weeks of Advent, next week all the way through the 30th, we're going to look at the songs of Christmas and the scriptures that inspire them. And so uh, I invite you to invite your friends to come along. It will only uh, be till the the 30th and Christmas Eve, so it's not a particularly long one, but it'll bridge our study uh, in uh, Exodus in January. Today, uh, James, at the very end of his letter, remember he's writing to his church, which is scattered. It's not in one location. It started in Jerusalem, and now he calls it dispersed. And because of that, there are folks within his church that have not only been scattered by God, but their own heart has moved them far from God. And so he's talking about how do you bring prodigals home? How do you bring wanderers from the faith back into community with God's people? When I uh, think of wanderers, I I think of um, Robert Robinson's a uh, poem that ultimately becomes a wonderful hymn called Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing. The third stanza, uh, he begins to talk about the wandering heart, his wandering heart. And he says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor I, uh, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, a fetter is a chain, uh, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And that is the danger 
for all of us. And if you don't think it's a danger, you are already dog meat. You are already the, the piece of meat that the lion is salvating to get. Because you don't even recognize the danger of your own heart. When you don't see that you too can be a wanderer. And don't think of a wanderer simply by all those who once were in the church that are no longer in the church. That truly is a description of wandering. And then you might be able to think of some people who really had a profession of faith. They, they, they really could recite the Apostles of Creed and say, I believe that. Or they could, they could look at the confession and say, faith and, and say, this really represents what I believe about God, about man, and about salvation. But now there are parts of it they don't hold to. We tend to think of them as the prodigals. But James isn't simply talking about those who physically or even uh, uh, mentally, but also in the heart are far from God. And, and the danger of that is you can be far from God and sit in the pew. It is right now in this room of this size, you're going to have people who are close to the Lord and people who are far from the Lord, both in the pew together. And if you can recognize that, then James' final words can be you too. That is, he could be talking about how you can come back. And, and, and our collective responsibility to bring prodigals home. To rescue the prodigals. And so in one way, James is talking uh, to those who have wandered. But he's also talking uh, to those who uh, can call the wanderer home. Who can pursue, who can uh, search, who can work toward bringing a prodigal home. Because we all know prodigals, if they're not us ourselves. You know, one of the, one of the real dangers in Christianity is for, because we are a minority culture within the, the American culture or the world, we tend to want to validate ourselves whenever there's a celebrity or a person of power and privilege who come to faith. We put them on a pedestal and we put them in front of the people. There's an incredible danger to that. Because everyone falls. But when people who are not on pedestals fall, they don't have so far to fall. But when, you put, when we put pe- people on pedestals because they've come to faith, when they fall, it's a greater fall. Not because, they f- because what they do is... Uh, 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 more grotesque, more horrible than what we do, simply because the fall is greater. Because they once were on a pedestal. And, and it's never more true than when a celebrity that, uh, who comes to faith later in life, and we're all excited that finally someone of literature or of, the, uh, uh, of other arts or out in Hollywood or in politics or in athletics uh, come to faith, that we put them in front of, of the body and we began to lift them up. That was never more true than for Anne Rice. Anne Rice, if you don't know who she is, she is the author of the Vampire Chronicles. If you want to uh, think of her equivalent, she was knowing uh, before Harry Potter ever hit the land. 
She uh, sold a tremendous number of books, millions and millions, and has become a very uh, wealthy woman. In 1998, uh, she uh, professed faith in Jesus Christ, uh, became part of her local church, and then the very thing that I just said happened to her. We began to uh, put her in front of people and build her up. And when uh, she began to look at, at other Christians that she knew, she became disillusioned. And when she became disillusioned, she uh, left uh, the church and, uh, and then the people began to think, oh, well, she must not have ever been a real Christian. And we began to excuse the behavior to explain how can someone so, so high profiled leave the faith? Well, what we have is her words. She said, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. I know that's hard to hear. For 10 years, I have tried. I have failed. I'm an outsider. In the name of Christ, I quit Christianity. You see, in a sense, James agrees with Anne Rice that Christians often do not live up to their name. Christians, pastors, elders, deacons, people in ministry, people who sit in the pew with you do not live up to their name. Christian. And when they don't, it is a long way down the fall. James recognizes that and says, okay, how do you bring someone back? How do you pursue the wanderer? He has spent five chapters identifying one failure after another of this church. And in humility on their part, they receive it. You know, he, he talks about the third rail in church. He talks about their money. And that's the one thing you, you don't talk much about. Even though Jesus spoke about money more than almost anything else in the scriptures. We don't want you to talk about our money. Particularly in the Western world, particularly in the United States, because so much of our lives are wrapped up in our money. And he spends a lot of time on it. He, he talks about politics, the other third rail in the church. You can talk about anything, but don't talk about politics. And he does talk about their politics, particularly in relation to their treatment of the poor and the immigrants. He talks about the words that we use toward one another, with one another. And he talks about our idols. And we don't like that. If you're going to talk about idols, talk about the wooden ones that people have, not the ones that are in our hearts. And so when you would expect James to then say, well, I'm washing my hands of you. I've been the pastor of this church for a long time and you've, you've, not, you've not made progress. You're dealing with the same things you've always done. And so I am washing my hands of you. We don't, we, that's what I would expect him to say 
in these last two, really in the Greek, it's only one sentence. This last two verses are just one sentence. And he says, my brothers, please read that James is talking in an ancient world where he is elevating women here. Whenever you read scripture and you get to uh, where it says my brothers or, or brothers, uh, please understand that is where the scriptures are being uh, most uh, inclusive, not exclusive. Because women would not have been included in the ancient world in that greeting or in that description. But James intentionally be- is including because he's writing to the church and the church would have been made up of both men and women. And so he's saying, my brothers, and the way we're supposed to read that is my brothers and sisters or my family. And so he's being inclusive, not exclusive. And rather than rejecting them, he's pursuing them. James is reminding us that we can pick a lot of things, but we cannot pick our family. We don't even uh, choose our spouses. And you say, but I did. And, and, and anybody knows my story? I dated 10 women and, and married Kathy. She was one of the 10. And so you could say, yes, I, I, I picked. But the reality is we've been married over 30 years and she's not the same woman that I married. And I hope I'm not the same man I married. For the better, I hope. You'd have to ask her. But my point being is is that we tend to think we chose our spouse, and we did. When we were 23 and 24 or 27 or 30, yes, we did. But it doesn't take long before that spouse is not the spouse you're currently married to. We change, I hope. If we don't, there's a problem. Because you know, if you had a baby who never changed, never grew, there's a problem. If you have a human being who never changes, there's a problem. One of the defining marks of family is this. You stay. You reconcile rather than reject. You pursue rather than you leave. And you rescue rather than you judge. And then you might be wondering, is there a legitimate reason to leave a church? And the answer is, of course. Whenever there's a loss of biblical orthodoxy, they refuse to preach the gospel, then you don't belong in that church. Another reason is spiritual abuse. Some leaders abuse people. They probably abuse people before they got into the pulpit, and they're abusing people after they got into the pulpit. The third reason is if you're in a church and you see no repentance, that's not a safe place to be. If Martin Luther, the number one thesis of the 95 thesis that he wrote about the problem in the church in the Middle Ages, he wrote that all of life is one of repentance. He wrote that as number one. And so if you have a church, and that's what he was describing, is we now have a church that has left Orthodoxy because the evidence is no repentance. And so with that aside, there are two groups of people in the church and most of us are both. There's not the real good people and the real bad people. That tends to be the way our culture sees everyone as good and bad, right and wrong, black and white. 
And, and we approach life that way and we want to put everybody into a category. Uh, James is not assuming uh, that uh, you're in this category and you're always in this category. But reality is all of us will be pursuers and all of us will be the pursued. Do you understand that part? Because the rest of it makes no sense unless everyone in this room is simultaneously or at least at different times in their lives, the pursued and the pursuer. You are the one, I am the one that pursues the wanderer. And at other times, I'm the wanderer who needs to be pursued. Another way to understand that is to divide those two in your mind as those who in humility receive correction and those who have the courage to correct. And both are necessary. First, this idea of humility, verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, obviously, he's talking about the pursuer pursuing the one who needs pursuit, the wanderer. And he's saying that when you get involved in this kind of activity, that your ultimate goal is to cover the sin. If you have any other motivation other than the covering of sin, you should not be involved in pursuing. You need to be pursued. Please don't miss that. Psalm 141 says, let a righteous man rebuke me. It is a kindness. Proverbs 27 says, the faithful are the wounds of a friend. The way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, puts it, he says, nothing can be crueler than the leniency that abandons others to their sin. Then he goes on and says, but nothing can be more compassionate than the severe correction that calls another Christian back from the path of sin. And so James is laying here the foundation of why to pursue, why rescue the wanderer. You rescue the wanderer because you want the sins covered, because you want the person to return, because you want them to repent. Richard Rohr, who writes a lot of books today, in his book, Breathing Underwater, I like that title, he is in one chapter comparing all of the addiction um, uh, recovery programs to repentance and sin. And because uh, uh, Richard Rohr is a Christian, he is trying to understand that the good aspects of these addictive recovery ministries in light of what the scriptures teach. And he says this, he says, all sin, like all addictions, is stinking thinking. That's almost a theological term. We are all addicted to our own defenses, our own patterned way of thinking. You cannot heal what you do not first acknowledge. I think that's an important understanding that repentance only comes through the beginning of acknowledging the sin. And that can only happen 
if somebody pursues you to point it out. Because according to Roar and according to the scriptures is that we blind ourselves to our own sin, particularly sins of patterns. Because they become so natural to us, we don't notice them. It is, it, it is like you smelling, but you can't smell yourself. And, I've, and, and I've had uh, all kinds of dogs, and uh, some dogs are, that we had were completely obedient. I had one dog that you could say, bay bath, and she would run upstairs, get in my shower, and sit until I came up and bathed her. She liked baths that much. I had another dog where you could not even say the word. We would spell it. But somehow she could spell. Because as soon as you said B, she was gone. And we had a doggy door, so she went out the doggy door. If we would collect the supplies, she was already aware. You see, she could go outside, roll around in her own stuff, bring it back inside and not notice there's a problem. That's the way our thinking is. That's the way my thinking is. Is that you don't even smell your own stink. And so somebody has to come up to you and say, you stink. That's what Richard Rohr is saying is that the beginning of repentance is acknowledgement. Do you know how every Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or every Narcotics Anonymous begins when someone speaks. Every time someone speaks, my name is Bruce, I am an alcoholic or I am an addict. And I used to think that they were identifying themselves by their addiction. That is not what they're doing. What they're doing is acknowledging their sin and that they are in process toward healing that they have not yet arrived. What, what, what a beautiful picture. In the old days, they used to say that we were simultaneously sinner and saint. I think that's getting at the same idea, is that part of repentance is someone pointing out so that we can acknowledge our sin. And therefore, for us to defeat a pattern in our lives, to break that pattern, we have to not just change the way in which we behave, we also have to change in the way in which we think and believe. I am grateful when people see patterns that I cannot see and say, you know, if you continue to do that, this is where it's going to hurt. Because if you could see it, that it was hurting people, who would do it? It's because we can't see it that we need someone to point it out. Henry Ford said this, my best friend is the one who brings out the best in me. If I could give a little corollary corollary to Henry Ford, sometimes bringing out the best in me is to expose the worst in me. That's what a pursuer does. That's where... In humility, a receiver receives. And you'd say, but I've done this, I've tried this, and it just hasn't worked. Have you asked the question, why are you doing it? What's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish? 
And the receiver should be able to pick up on that without you telling them. That is, some people will say, I'm doing this for your best. I'm doing this because I love you. Sometimes that's to leave our own hearts because we have something very difficult to say. But the reality is, it may not feel like love, but the person receiving ought to know that it is love. But it takes courage, not just humility, but courage. Courage to step into someone's life and to pry Gollum's fingers off the ring of power that is killing them. To recognize that there are patterns, and obviously we're not talking about every sin and every kind. If God has called you to be the sin police for everyone else, you're not needed. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And he needs no assistance. But if you've got friendships that you love and treasure and you begin to see them wander away from faith and you so much want them to come back to the faith and into the community, then please say something. That's what Paul does for for Peter. In Galatians 2, Peter has gone up into Antioch, the new and, and latest church that everybody's all excited about. And he's there and he's there with all these Gentile Christians and he begins to eat their food that previously he could not as a, a Jewish uh, cultured uh, uh, ethnic person. And so when Jews come up there from Jerusalem who have also uh, come to faith, he begins to revert back. Uh, to his previous patterns, and Paul finds out about it. It's not that that Peter's mental thinking had changed about those things. It's about who he wanted to approve of him, who his idol was, which was the approval and pleasure of men. And so Paul steps into that and says, your life has come out. This pattern of what you're doing is destroying not only you, but the community itself. You're out of line is the way that he phrases it with the gospel. And he calls him back. Becky uh, Pippard in her book, Hope Has Its Reason, said this. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Love detests what destroys the beloved. Is that the motivation for the pursuit? Because you hate what destroys the beloved. Well, then how how can we intervene? The key is my brothers. The motivation here is to rescue and to recover. It's not to expose and to shame. Let me first say this, and then I'll, I'll give you a beautiful example of that in Scripture one way you know the, the kind of correction, the kind of pursuit that you're having is by its effect. And that's, it's sad. It's, it's kind of like where we are with uh, uh, some kinds of ALS and Alzheimer's. It almost has to be an autopsy for you to find out. 
And it's a shame that often correction, we don't know the motivations until it has been offered, until we're further down. But one of the ways you know is by its effect, and there are two effects in correction. One is to pile on shame, and the other seeks to lift the shame. Let me give you the example. There's a letter, actually there's two letters, and we know this. There probably was more of the letters, but only two of the letters were put into the Bible, and they have this in common. They have a, they have a man in the church in Corinth. He was having an affair, an illicit affair, uh, with his stepmother. And because the church, no one in the church got angry at that, that got out, their nose out of joint, that, that wanted to pursue and confront that, Paul had to do it from a distance. He knew the church, he knew that was going on there. And so he said, hey, look, we need to turn this guy over. This means put him out of the community so that he would know the gravity of what he's doing because he won't repent. And that's exactly what they do. And in the first letter of the Corinthians, we don't know what happens. We don't find that out until that second letter that we have called 2 Corinthians. We know he returns to the church. And, and what could have happened is that the people, one way you would have known that what, the, what their motivation was in pursuit of this young man was the effect it had. The fact that he returned tells us something. But it also tells us something that they didn't ask him to wear a scarlet letter. To identify himself by what he had done. The way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, he says, The God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our affliction, who comforts us in our shame, through his forgiveness, through his healing grace, so that we may now turn and comfort others in their affliction and shame with the love of God. It is a kindness to pry Gollum's fingers off the ring of power, but it is also a kindness, an equal kindness, to welcome them back the wandering brother or sister into the community without shame and punishment. Paul ends this beautiful letter by saying, as for this man, now that he has returned to your community, forgive and comfort him so that he does not what? Become overwhelmed by the excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. When we have people who have wandered and returned to the community, when you know a friend, a family member who has wandered from the faith, your responsibility, your obligation upon their return is to find some tangible way to show your love for them. Not just say, I love you, welcome back. What's the tangible way that they've been welcomed back in the community itself? And as I've described to you that he says that if you will do this important work with your friends, then not only does it save him, but it also in this, in this beautiful sense brings him back into the community. And you say, but we need to see this worked out. We can't. We can't get this just by giving instruction. We need examples. We need, we need illustration of this so that we know how to do this with one another. We're going to do it so poorly. And, and you know, the Bible recognizes that. James recognizes that. 
And because of that, this last little point is that leaders have to repent first. Because if the congregation is ever going to learn how to repent, then its leaders have to be first. And they have to do it well so people can learn. It it, it works with children. If the parents refuse to repent, then no wonder the children don't know how to repent. And if the congregation, there's no mutual repenting with one another, it is because they don't see it in the leadership. It's not, it's not your imagination. Leaders have to lead in this kind of stuff. And James does that. How does he begin this letter? He calls Jesus what? Lord and master. Why is that so, so important? It's because James grew up in the home with Jesus, his, his, his little brother, and we get this idea that, Je- that Jesus had all the answers growing up. We don't know what happened to him from about his eighth year until he shows up about his 30th year. And so what Christians have done is that we've poured into our impressions of Jesus playing trivia pursuit and getting every answer. Or playing soccer and getting every goal. Not only is he the goalie, but he's also the leading scorer on the team. Somehow we've poured all of that into the scriptures. We forget that verse that he grew in stature before God and man. And so here's James growing up in this home and he sees all of the things that Jesus failed in. At least from his perspective. And then Jesus begins his ministry and says that in your presence today, Isaiah is fulfilled. I'm the Messiah. And what's James's response to that is, hey, Jesus, come home. Because the people are going to get the impression that you're crazy. And if they think you're crazy, they're going to think we're crazy. That our whole family is crazy. Come home. And then in 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about the resurrection, he says that not only did Jesus appear before 500, he says, but he specifically appeared before James's brother. Can you imagine what that did? Yes, he would rejoice, but he would also feel ashamed that I said you were crazy. And so he starts out his only letter. Jesus is my master and Lord. That's his repentance. Dan Allender, in his book, he will call this leading with a limp. Every leader has one. Every leader has one because there are no perfect leaders. They're not in the White House, they're not in Congress, and they're not in the church. Because we have all failed, and we all carry our wounds, sometimes they get fully healed, and sometimes they are left with the limp, so that God's strength would be shown through our weakness. The truth is, people in power don't have to repent. Because they're in power. And we know that. Sometimes those that have the ultimate power, when you present to them something that they have done, they don't have to. They're still in power. But the best leaders are those who repent and repent first. The truth is, I have never lived out perfectly one of my sermons. 27 years. If it wasn't for the last point of every sermon I've ever preached, 
I would be depressed more than I am. My last point is always run to Jesus for mercy and grace. Because no matter what he said about pursuing the wanderer or you being the wanderer, we don't do that perfectly. And therefore we need mercy and grace. What qualifies a person to be a leader is not his perfection. It is his repentance. Leaders in the church are its chiefest repenters. It's not about title or power or age. In fact, some of our best repenters, our best leaders are children. Jesus knew that. And humility is a qualifying mark of that leader. Dwight Moody, when he was at the height of his ministry before my time, he was given a sermon in Chicago and seminary student stopped him at, at the beginning and was trying to correct him for something he was saying. And, and, and Dwight Moody was so concerned about the people out in, in the crowd that were listening to his presentation of the gospel, he shut him down and he rebuked him. About halfway through the sermon, he said, friends, I have to confess before all of you that at the beginning of my meeting, I I gave a very foolish answer to my brother down here. I asked God to forgive me, and I asked him to forgive me in front of all of you. Moody didn't have to do that because the people applauded him when he corrected this young seminary student. He set aside his power in order to be humble, to humble himself, which led to the end with an embrace with this young man. What gives Moody and James and us the power to be the first repenter? It is Christ himself who humbled himself in that while we were still his enemies, he dies for us. Where's the power in that? Let me give you something that Spurgeon, the old prince of preachers, the height of the 19th century preaching. Charles Spurgeon, who was in London and He was preaching at his uh, new church there in London. And his custom was that after the sermon, he would go to the back doors and greet all the people as they were leaving. And so this older lady who had been in the church for a long, long time and heard a lot of great preachers came up to him afterwards and said, Pastor Spurgeon, that is the worst sermon I have ever heard. And you have got to be the worst preacher I have ever heard. Now, Charles Spurgeon could have said, you haven't heard very many, have you? But he doesn't. He says, dear lady, I'm a lot worse than that. That's humility. And the power to pursue the wanderer is to recognize that you're worse than what you know about them. Because you know your own heart. You can only guess at their heart, and often that's what gets us into trouble when we impugn a motive to someone else because we can't see our heart. But we can see our own. And you're infinitely, I am infinitely worse than you know. Every preacher can say that. But it is also true that his congregation is infinitely worse than he thought. But it is also true that you and I are infinitely more loved than we ever dared hope. And because of that, 
we can pursue and be pursued. That's what enables us to repent and enables us to pursue because we are already forgiven. That's how James wants us to think about ministry in the church. That it is about believing and repenting. And that part of repentance, we tend to think is only saying we're sorry, but it really is turning and being obedient to what we believe. And so when someone is calling me, they're only calling me to what is true and beautiful and good. And all of those are defined by who God is because he is true and beautiful and good. And when I go to call someone else to, to obedience, to repentance, I'm calling them to what is true and beautiful and good. To where the Anne Rices who are right, that, we, that we're a mess, but we are the forgiven mess who will one day be perfect because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. that your standard of perfection was met and that when you turn to us, you see the perfection of Christ in us. And until the day in which our hearts are completely renewed in Christ, we don't live up to that perfection in us. And we need to ask forgiveness from those that we have harmed, particularly when our fingers have been clutching the ring of power in our lives, our idols, and where that has caused us to wander from you. Help us, Father, to recognize the brothers and sisters around us who need to be called back to your community of faith and then when they come back that we might have a demonstrative way to show that they are loved by you and by us help us father to to look at these two verses as even a calling of the church to pursue and to be pursued but to always be repenting so that those who come into our body don't get the impression that we're trying to be the perfect. But we are the perfected by the Spirit of Christ in us. Help us, Heavenly Father, to go from this place and to live into this community and lean into it as the first repenters and those who repent well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.